Well, turn with me this morning to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 this morning. I'm grateful for the privilege to preach God's word week in and week out. It is a real joy. And I am grateful that you gather to worship God and to hear his word. That is the work of grace. I'm thankful that we can have this time together each Lord's Day. So Romans chapter 1, I'm going to read beginning at verse 18 through to verse 32. We'll take the uh, second half of this chapter all at once. It gives us one thought, so we'll develop that all this morning. Romans chapter 1, I'll begin reading at verse 18 through the end of the chapter. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with each other, and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. When John the Baptist preached to the crowds in the Judean desert, he announced the coming of God's reign, the coming of God's kingdom, and he called God's people to repent. And many people responded favorably. We know things ended badly for John the Baptist. 
But things started well in the sense that many people came to his preaching and came in order to repent. So we have the crowds in general coming, tax collectors come, even soldiers come. And those groups say, what should we do? How can we show our repentance by our deeds? But when John saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming, he gave them a strong rebuke. Matthew 3 reads, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Now, I find John's question there interesting. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Well, one might assume that John warned them. Or maybe someone else did. Maybe the word got out what he was preaching. But at the end of the day, why does John care who warned them? Shouldn't John just be happy to see that they're coming, that they are fleeing from wrath? Well, I bet he would be. But he asked that question. Because he knows they aren't actually fleeing from wrath. Hence his follow-up statement to them, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Oh, you want to escape wrath, Pharisees and Sadducees? Then you will need to repent. And you will need to show evidence of your repentance through a changed life. And the fact that they aren't changing their lives shows that they don't really think they have sinned to repent of. And thus they don't believe that they are actually in danger of God's wrath. And as we come into Romans 1 today, that idea, the idea that we don't think we need to repent, that we don't believe that we are in danger of God's wrath, that drives the passage we have read today. So in the previous two verses, Paul announced the gospel. It's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And the gospel can save because it reveals God's righteousness that we receive by faith alone. That's the heart of the gospel. That's what Paul unpacks in this letter. And so now, as he moves into the body of the letter, he continues to show how the good news can affect salvation. Again, verse 18, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress their truth, uh, the truth by their wickedness. How does the good news save? Because it solves the problem of human sin. Why must we live by faith? Because our actions bring God's wrath. They earn his judgment rather than his righteousness. And the challenge for us today, and we'll see this is actually part of Paul's strategy, the challenge for us is to accept whatever these verses say about our sin and not think that such condemnation applies to others. So there are statements here that Paul makes about sexuality, which I don't have to tell you, are not tolerated by parts of our society. But just when we think it's time to point the finger outside, okay, this is the passage where we can point the finger outside and feel good about ourselves, notice how quickly Paul begins the next chapter. Chapter 2, verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse... You who pass judgment on someone else. 
For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. You see, according to Paul, all of us at some point, in some way, are guilty of the things we will read in these verses today. And so the purpose of the passage isn't that we would therefore condemn others, but we would see why we ourselves need the gospel. The gospel is good news, but it's only good news if we first accept the bad news that God tells us about our sinful condition. So let's listen to this passage as it shows us why we need the gospel. And it gives us three reasons. Here's the first. Because we don't know and worship God. We need the gospel because we don't know and worship God. Now before you say, well, I'm a Christian. I know God. Let me say one more thing about what Paul is doing in this passage. When I would read this passage in the past, I always wondered, who is Paul talking about specifically? And I would wonder that because our English translations render most of the verbs in this passage in the past tense. So, for example, verse 21 says, For although they knew God, or verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God. And verse 24, therefore God gave them over. Don't those sentences on on some level sound like, oh, this is a description of a previous generation. This is Paul telling us something that happened in the past. And some take it that way. They, They see this chapter as referring back to the fall of Adam and Eve. Or maybe referring to the golden calf incident uh, that Israel did there in Exodus 32. But I think the better approach is to take most of these verbs as timeless. Which means Paul isn't interested in putting these actions in the past. He is very much concerned to place them in the present. So, for example, one Greek scholar who studied the way verbs work, he translates verse 21 as, Although they know God, they do not glorify or give thanks to him as God. So also verses 24 and 25, God gives them over to their desires. And they exchange the truth about God for a lie. I think that's the right approach. And the effect of translating the verbs that way is to show us how all humans in all places and all times tend to act. This is a universal description of humanity. And so even if the passages referred back to the fall of Adam and Eve, even if they were looking back to some first event, the point would be, to show us how that same sin is repeated in every generation. Because we inherit the corruption of our first parents, we sin just as they did. So now the question is, okay, well, how do humans naturally act uh, apart from God? Apart from grace, apart from God saving us, apart from God restraining us, how do we tend to act? Well, again, verse 18, God's wrath is being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of people 
who suppress the truth by their wickedness. God is angry with humans because we suppress or we resist, we hold down what we know about God. Instead of knowing God, we would rather engage in wickedness. And what is it that we are supposed to know about God? Verses 19 and 20 read, Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. The existence of the world testifies to the fact that there is a God and that he is powerful. Everything we see had to come from somewhere. It can't generate itself. So someone outside of this world got this whole thing started and fashioned it in a powerful and wise way. And Paul contends here that every human being should be able to deduce those basic facts. God has made it evident to us. And in fact, Paul implies not only that this is possible, you should see this. Paul implies that everyone, to a certain extent, understands something about God's existence and nature. There is a certain amount of knowledge that we actually know. And because we know certain things about God, we have no excuse for not knowing God. So what's the problem? Why don't we all know God? Why don't we all worship the creator? The problem is we don't follow the knowledge to its proper end. So C.S. Lewis made this distinction. He goes, imagine you're standing in a dark room like a tool shed and a beam comes through a crack. Now you can see the sunbeam. You can look at the sunbeam or You can use the sunbeam to see. The sunbeam will illuminate other things. You don't just look at the sunbeam, you look along it. Well, many people see this world, but they don't use the world to see the creator. They don't follow the sunbeam back to the sun. They never look up and see where it all came from or wonder where it all came from, and they don't follow those signs to the ultimate end. That's why Paul goes on to say here in verses 21 to 23, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles, regardless of how much we can learn about God from nature, regardless of how much we are supposed to know. Instead of worshiping the one true and living God, we make our own gods. And these gods match our desires. These gods match our ideas. 
And again, at this point, you may say, I don't worship idols. Come on over this afternoon. There's no statues of animals or false gods in my house. We don't bow down to them, you know, before we eat our dinner. Maybe not. But let me ask you this. Instead of enjoying God's presence, God's glory, do you settle for things that only reflect his power and might? Because if you do, that is idolatry. One author writes, This tragic process of human God-making continues apace in our own day. And Paul's words have as much relevance for people who have made money or sex or fame their gods as for those who carved idols out of wood and stone. If there's anything you say, I have to have this to live. I I am not complete without this. I'm not safe without this. I'm not satisfied without this. Anything that you put in that slot other than God is an idol. And that is what we are prone to do. And that would just raise one more question. But why? Why do we do this? Why do we rebel against the light we have? Even if it's a dim light, why don't we follow that light? And again, because there's something fundamentally wrong with us on the inside. And that starts from day one. John Calvin said, our hearts are idle factories. And there's nothing that can shut down that supply line. It keeps working day and night. Another author says, we're like a shopping cart with a bent wheel. You ever had that at the store? It's annoying, isn't it? No matter how hard you push that thing, It will not go in the right direction. That is our nature. And ironically, the further we go in the wrong direction, the worse we get. That's why Paul says their foolish hearts were darkened. In the center of our being, at the seat of our understanding, there is darkness. We start with darkness on the inside. And the more we follow that darkness, the darker things get. Again, another author puts it this way, at the very center of every person, where the knowledge of God must be embraced, there has settled a darkness. A darkness that only the light of the gospel can penetrate. And thank God, the gospel powerfully does that. God just shines the light in the heart. And that's why some people are saved. Many are saved and come to him because he shines the light. But this is where we ask our first question. Do you know God? Because if you are not a Christian, if you don't know him through Jesus Christ, you will not find God on your own. You won't find him in nature. You won't find him inside of you. You won't find him chasing the satisfaction and the safety and the security this world offers. You'll only find him in Jesus. And the good news of the gospel is Jesus has come. He has come to rescue us from ourselves. As one old prayer says, he stretched out his arms on the cross to embrace the world. He's come to rescue you from the darkness and to bring you into his true life. And if you're a Christian, are you settling for anything less than God, for your direction, for your joy in life? We all have jobs, we all have ambitions, and I would say the the Bible says we should pursue those things for his glory. 
In other words, the problem in life isn't that God gives us gifts to enjoy or we have things to do every day and it's not always clear, you know, how they pay off spiritually. That's not the problem. Those are things God has given us to do. The question is, do we treat those things as ultimate? Do we pursue them without reference to God? Do we pursue them without thinking, okay, how does God want me to do this? Do we honor God? Do we follow his commands in how we pursue those things? Because every idol will fail. Every idol will disappoint. And sadly, every idol will lead to further sin. So we need the gospel because we don't know and worship God naturally. Secondly, we need the gospel because we misuse our bodies. So in the rest of the chapter, Paul describes how our failure to know God, that's the most fundamental problem in this chapter, that then leads to a whole host of other sins, beginning with sexual impurity. So verses 24 to 25 read, Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Now notice that word gave them over. It it recurs three times in this passage. It's used elsewhere to refer to someone being handed over to the police or the court or prison. It's also used to refer to how, in the Old Testament, God handed over Israel's enemies to be defeated in battle. And the point is to say, look, when you sin, if if you run into sin, you just follow that course, God will hand you over to further sin. Now, how should we understand that idea that God hands us over to sin? Some describe the action somewhat passively. So you are sitting in a boat, and the stream is your sinful desires, and God takes his hand off the boat. He lets that boat float downstream. Now, I won't deny that's a part of it, but I don't think that captures the active nuance in the phrase, God gave them over. So the better illustration may be, God shoves the boat downstream. You will still make the choice to sin, but you will find yourself less and less able to say no to sin. And that is a manifestation of God's wrath. So just know, friends, sometimes the worst thing God can do to you when you're desiring to sin is to give you what you want. If sin is what you want, the worst thing God could do is give you what you want. So what kind of sin does a failure to know God lead to? Well, in these verses, Paul focuses on sexual immorality. One of the ways our separation from God manifests itself is in our twisted sexual desires. So again, marriage is one of God's gifts to his creation. And sex within marriage is one of God's gifts. To desire marriage and intimacy in and of itself is not sinful. But when we pursue sexual satisfaction outside of marriage, when we lust after people we're not married to, we twist and misuse God's gifts and reap his displeasure. 
And not only that, but Paul also draws attention to the unnatural desires of homosexuality. Verses 26 and 27 read, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. And when Paul refers there to natural sexual relations, he is referring to desires that correspond to the created order. Not what feels natural, but the way God made things. God created Adam and Eve. He made them male and female. And he brought them together as such in the Garden of Eden. Therefore, when it comes to homosexual desires and actions, we must listen to what Paul says. That they are a misuse of God's creation. That incur God's wrath and do not produce joy in this life. We should resist such desires. And some may ask, but what if such desires feel natural? What if someone does not feel attraction towards the opposite sex? We must still listen to what Paul says. We must recognize that natural is defined by God's created order, not by what we feel or desire. So if homosexual attractions feel natural, that does not make them okay. Here's what else Paul says about such desires. This is who the gospel is for. Paul tells us, or better yet, God tells us the truth about our sin so that we will hear the good news of the gospel. Homosexuality is not the unpardonable sin. God accepts all through the gospel. So if this is something you wrestle with, then the gospel is for you. If you are a Christian and wrestle with these desires, then the church is here for you. Our job is to help shepherd you through those temptations. So don't pretend they don't exist. Don't hide. Get help from the community that actually exists for your growth and grace. And just to bring it back to where Paul starts here with immorality in general, I don't have to tell you, our culture is obsessed with sex. It permeates all forms of entertainment, discussion, and what have you. And it is treated as the ultimate goal in life. And the less rules, the better. And Christians have not been immune to following some of those lines of thinking. I have heard preaching, and maybe you've read stories about other ministries that have made sex the ultimate goal of marriage and the Christian life. And frankly, friends, it borders on the idolatrous. At the same time, some Christians are addicted to pornography, including people who are married. And I say all this to say, don't miss what Paul says in verse 25. In the middle of these descriptions of immorality, Paul repeats this idea that we serve created things rather than the creator. So whether you are an unbeliever or a Christian, whether you are married or single, you will never find ultimate satisfaction 
in created things. We chase those things because we're trying to find ultimate satisfaction there. You will find it first in God. And once you put down that anchor, then the other things fall into place. Then you can rightly use his gifts. And regardless of your age and station in life, if you need help doing those things, that is what we are here for. We need the gospel because we misuse our bodies. And lastly, we need the gospel because we sin in every way imaginable. Paul has one last arrow in his quiver here. And it's the vice list he gives in verses 29 through 31. He restates one more time in verse 28 the idea that God hands people over to further sin. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. And then Paul gives us a comprehensive list. He touches every base here of the many kinds of wickedness that result from not knowing God. And I don't have to define every term in this list. I don't have to go through and explain every item. Because the point is just to paint this overall picture. It's like Paul just releases this giant wave here and it will leave no person standing. So just listen to this list and see if any of these sins hit close to home. Because they should. Verse 29, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. These are the sins that flow from not knowing God. These are sins that place us in danger of God's wrath and in need of the gospel. That's why verse 32 refers to God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. The wrath of God is being revealed against those who practice these things. And this is why I said at the beginning that what we need to see is where this passage, whatever portion it may be, speaks to us. You see, it is very tempting to be repulsed by what we read in verses 26 and 27, but not bothered by what we read in verses 29 to 31, or to be much less bothered. But Paul's point here is to show these sins incur God's wrath. Is homosexuality a sin? Yes. And so is greed and envy and gossip and slander and a lack of love and a lack of mercy. And when was the last time we thought of lacking mercy as incurring God's wrath along the lines of homosexuality? I mean, I've heard Christians say, they have said this in my presence, I'm the kind of person who cuts people off when they cross a line with me. And I know in my own heart 
In marriage, child-rearing, home, work, ministry, I have failed to show mercy at times. Paul says, if we commit those sins, we are in danger of God's wrath, just like those who pursue immorality. In fact, Paul probably started with sexual immorality because he knew his audience would agree with that sin. But once he's got us nodding our heads in agreement, he turns to us and says, now, what about your sin? Because no one escapes the condemnation of God's law. And we all need the gospel. So, what's the solution? The gospel, friends. Are you eaten up with anger and pride? Then the gospel is for you. Do you frequently rebel against your parents and feel anger towards God? Then the gospel is for you. Do you love to sin and do you encourage others to do so? Then the gospel is for you. Are you consumed with lust and unholy affections? Then the gospel is for you. And it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. You need it. It's available. If you repent and follow Christ, full, transforming, forgiving salvation is for you. So let's pray to that end. And let's give thanks to God for his mercy. Father in heaven, we do thank you that you always tell us the truth. And I pray today that you would show us our sin so that we may repent, so that we may find hope in the glorious gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Open our eyes. Take away the blind spots. May your word powerfully speak to us. And may we be willing to repent of whatever sin your word and spirit find. And Father, I also pray, this is my prayer especially for us as a church, that we would know the power of God in our temptations, whatever they may be, wherever they are on this list, or if there's some other portion of the Bible uh, that's speaking to us. God, make us to know your power against temptations. Sanctify us by truth. Your word is truth. Make us to think more in line with Scripture. Give us wisdom to live godly lives and free us from the temptations and the sins that so easily ensnare us and give us victory that we may live in the transforming, glorious power of the gospel. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.